Hello everyone, my name is Aya, you're listening to Radio Reverb, this is Refugee Radio and today in the studio we have Peter and Steve. Hello. Hello. Peter, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, how old you are, where you're, f- where you're from? So I am 38 and I'm originally from Zimbabwe uh, in a part of uh, this, uh, the country uh, or the second largest city called Bulawayo. I think in Zimbabwe, we've got two main kind of like um, sets of um, languages, in a sense, if I could put it that way. Um, so I live in the part where they speak in Devele, which is one of the, which is the, the second language of the country. And that's the town where you grew up? Yes, I was born and raised there. Uh, I went to school there. Um, that's where all my family are. I do have some other family who live with, with in the other part of the country, uh, but more or less all my family, my immediate family, are from Bluewell. And what was it like growing up there? It was good. Um, I guess we in Zimbabwe, we more or less have kind of like, due to uh, Britain being, what is us being a former colon of, of the British, our kind of like, um, our way of living and our school structure and our work kind of like um, setup is similar to the one in the UK. So the, in a sense, you start going to school at six years old. Uh, was this, uh, you go t- and do your GCSEs, what you guys call here, uh, O-levels back in Zimbabwe. You do your A-levels, and then you normally go to university after that. And now you're currently living in Brighton. What's that like? I moved to Brighton in 2015. Um, and this was due after finding kind of like a niche role that was being advertised um, with one of the local... NHS organizations. Um, the role was to kind of like uh, focus on working with unaccompanied asylum seeking children uh, and young uh, males from a BME background. So um, that's the reason why I moved to Brighton to kind of like to take up that post. What kind of work do you do with these unaccompanied asylum uh, children? Okay, so the role was to, in a sense, um, try and, uh, what's this? advertise that um, the NHS were looking to improve um, the emotional and psychological well-being of young people who, who are, in a sense, unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Uh, sometimes they do have difficulties with maybe integrating to the local community um, due to some of the, what's this, their cultural history. Um, they most probably struggle to to openly talk about the, the emotional and psychological well-being. So um, the role was trying to engage them in a non-clinical environment within their community to kind of like, uh, let them feel more comfortable about openly um, discussing how they are managing, uh, promoting their emotional and psychological well-being, how are they integrating to the local community, what access, uh, what support services are they accessing. So that was kind of like the main focus of the role. Can I ask a question? There was a study recently, I think, in Cambridge that found well over 50% of young Afghanistani uh, unaccompanied asylum-seeking children who were coming to the UK had you know, presented with symptoms of PTSD kind of on arrival. Yeah. And they found that um, the study suggested that perhaps uh, you know, young people that are coming claiming asylum by themselves might have a higher level of mental health need than older asylum seekers. Do you think that's kind of one of the reasons why they created this job in the first place? Yes. Um, so I think um, I, I don't want to name the, 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 the local authority or the commissioning group. I think they had to look to say, actually, uh, we've seen examples in other areas. We most probably want to be proactive in um, asking 
what is getting these young people to access this service, uh, to, what is um, uh, to do some preventative work rather than them having to come and see them uh, at a later stage when things are, are in crisis in a sense. So the role I will most probably say I would what is liaise with colleges, I would liaise with uh, children's services to say this is who I am uh, and charities as well. And if you know of any young people who most probably might benefit from in a sense emotional and psychological well-being assessment to figure out what help we can help with them going forward. And you most probably find that quite a large percentage of them were on the verge or did have some traits of, of PTSD, in a sense. So, But they were not really talking about it or accessing any service. So my role was to, in a sense, um, engage them and then look to uh, link them in with mental health services so that they can access psychological therapies or medications if needed or in what's in the worst case scenarios, um, hospital treatments. And, and what did it uh, look like? I mean, with these young people, as opposed to say uh, another young person who didn't have these problems, uh, what was what did you kind of pick up on to see? Oh, this is a sign that this person's uh, troubled, or, or you know, what kind of um, were the uh, symptoms they were presenting with, or the clues that you thought, all oh, right, there's a problem here. Okay, so you know, in what way they were different to other children. Main part of it was social isolation. They were struggling to integrate within whether it's in the school environment or the college environment, and I'm picking things with them. You most probably find that was um, the cues or the signs that somebody is most probably on the PTSD spectrum is um, them struggling maybe with their sleeping patterns, uh, maybe them having increased uh, anxiety levels, um, having increased um, um, negative thoughts surrounding suicidal ideation, and maybe uh, being quite angry with with the world in a sense. So those are the signs that I would be wanting to unpick with them to figure out how best to help them going forward. And why do you think it's quite hard for young unaccompanied asylums to talk about their problems? I think it's most probably a cultural thing. I can only speak about what is um, my own cultural background, uh, but I think it might resonate with other um, people's cultural backgrounds in the sense that at maybe 14, 15, 16, it wasn't something that I would want to be openly discussing how I'm feeling, if I'm feeling angry, if I'm feeling sad, if I'm feeling what's this, um, quite depressed, in a sense. You, you Sometimes uh, people are having to put a mask on, in a sense. It wasn't felt to, to something that males in particular could um, sit down with somebody and um, openly discuss. Uh, it was also a challenge for me trying to engage the young people here because I think they still had that kind of like um, same thought process. So it was a case of gradually uh, working through... Uh, was working it through with them, which is actually sometimes it's okay to feel sad, uh, but let's talk about how you're finding things and think about how we can best help you going forward. How do you observe they feel about coming to Brighton? Okay, coming to Brighton, I think my understanding, um, most probably, uh, it's a tricky one. Some of them that I've, that I, I, the young people that I met uh, were originally most probably relocated to Brighton, if I could put it that way, uh, maybe within foster placements um, um, from maybe from Kent. Um, I think Brighton is quite uh, multicultural and it's quite an, um, a welcoming city. Um, some of them felt m- a little bit more better here than in, others, was in other counties. 
and I think there's more um, what we call services or the, even though they're gradually getting less and less there's more activities for them to do in the community so I think a lot of them in a sense um, enjoyed or was found it relatively safe and comfortable to live in the Brighton Hove area. Obviously, without going into any details about uh, some of the individual children that you worked with, yeah. but what did you understand to be the the process by which they came to the UK? So, for example, with an adult asylum seeker, they might have had to sneak into the country in order because you obviously you can't legally. Uh, there's no way of getting a visa to come to England to claim asylum. So yeah. they might have to either come on a different kind of visa or, you know, in some cases people have snuck on the back of lorries from Calais or yeah. people have flown in with fake documents or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they've funded that themselves through selling businesses or selling their homes or borrowing money or whatever from their family in order to escape their situation. Yeah. Um, but what's, how does a young person by themselves manage to get all the way here? Is, is it a sense of their family sending them or is it a sense of them, uh, you know, following uh, a route themselves? Well, obviously, there's lots of different stories Ways, and yeah, there's lots yeah. of personal details you won't be able to share. But I'm interested in, in that process. Uh, maybe if I could use an example of a young person who came from, I would say, East Africa. I think for him, he was the family funded, uh, was his him traveling to the United Kingdom. Uh, and I think he had a chaperone. If, is, that, is that a correct word? Chaperone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, somebody who the family had paid uh, and the, the older person was also in, a, in the process of coming to claim asylum here. So I think they traveled through the Sahara Desert. They got to Libya and then from Libya um, it was Italy. Then from Italy, uh, they made their way to Calais. And I believe they uh, got onto a lorry. Uh, and then presented uh, in Kent to children's service to say, I'm a 16-year-old and I'm an asylum-seeking young person and I would like some help. Um, I think if I'm using the route for the guys or the young people who I saw from Asia, it's more or less the same story that most probably it was Iran or, or Turkey and then crossing into Europe and then what's this getting onto lorry again and coming and, and, what's this, and presenting when they come to the UK. Yeah, I, I'm struggling to figure out if I actually met a young person who came via the normal route. By normal route, I mean by coming maybe via plane and then claiming asylum at the airport. So I think most of who I met were through Cali. So they're kind of almost uh, from the start, they have that experience of then smuggling themselves into the country via yes. Cali you're kind of already like a criminal because you have to sneak on board a lorry and sneak yeah. past guards and all that stuff. Even though, of course, if they're desperate to um, reach a place of safety, they're not uh, trying to steal something but, but, uh, or you know, hurt anybody, but it's still, they must feel like criminals. Yes. Uh, and, and then does that then affect their integration when they come to the UK? So that if you're a young person who's in trouble with the police and the criminal justice system, once you're once you're you once you feel like a a, a wrong and you can kind of continue to act like that and you hang out with dodgy people and you get into trouble. How do these young people uh, integrate in that way and kind of keep their heads above water in terms of crime and getting into trouble with the police? Do they already feel like criminals or are they able to set that aside and go, well, I just did that, but now I'm going to be like a normal teenager? I mean, I would say the percentage of young people who I've uh, worked with, quite a lot of them are most probably. Um, 
refrain from in being involved, uh, what's this, being in contact or being involved with the criminal justice system, if I could put it that way. Um, why? Because they, I think they understand that has an impact on whatever claim that they've got with the Home Office. So they refrain quite significantly from being involved with, uh, what's this, with the criminal justice system. And um, they also most probably aren't... Um, used to maybe maybe taking drugs or drinking alcohol it's not something that culturally that they do which kind of like has an impact on how people are finding things so a lot of them are quite um, sensible young people who in a sense are, are trying as much to integrate um, but I guess it's society that kind of like maybe labels them then that's when it becomes a problem and so they uh, do you, have you come across it where people have kept it secret from their friends uh, if they're studying at college or something, they don't even tell their friends that they're asylum seekers. Is that a large percentage of them do that? Don't what's this, don't really want to talk about um, what's this, um, the kind of like journey. I think it's more when they're more settled, they're more comfortable. Um, that's when they'll most probably reveal it to close friends rather other than everybody else. I think it's. Um, I think that maybe they might be afraid of the stigma to say actually, oh, you're an asylum seeker, this and this and that. Um, so I think a lot of them refrain from. Um, disclosing that type of information to a lot of people. So it's a shame, a sense of shame about it because of prejudice against the yes, term. Yes, yes. Yeah. So on the topic of college and integration, I was wondering what the process of getting these kids back into education is like. Okay. It should be straightforward, uh, particularly for, <laughs> for young um, children, or if I would say... I think the sc- normally sc- the education or schools have should be uh, looking to offer a young person maybe a, a place within a school establishment within 20 days of them being notified that there's a young person who is 12 or 13 who needs to be offered a place in a high school. It, sometimes it does take longer than that. Sometimes it takes a, a little bit of shorter time. In Brighton here, I'm trying to think, um, most probably quite a, a significant amount of them do end up going, getting into education of some f- sort. Um, it might be that the school might say, actually, because you've come middle of term, we might want to offer you a reduced timetable for you to get comfortable and acclimatised to our school environment, but there will be some form of education that they're accessing, in a sense. And how, how do you find they manage that? Um, a lot of them most probably struggle with adjusting to a different, what's this, education establishment some or some young people most probably would not have been to school themselves wherever they're from so that it's kind of like a new environment for them so i think the the process of integrating them gradually is usually works better because they can get used to saying actually okay um this is what are the rules in a class this is what the teachers expect of me um this is what i'm most probably be gaining out of this so they tend to I would say maybe it's a 50-50. Some people integrate well, some people don't. And some people might struggle. Um, so it's a case of looking out for those who are going to struggle and trying to kind of like offer them a, a extensive support, so whether it's within the school environment or the other support networks as well. Could you talk to us a little bit more about those support networks? So support networks, I mean most probably people from mental health services, maybe people from children's services, maybe people from charities like Refugee Radio, trying to, in a sense, ex- extensively work with that young person to make them feel more comfortable, acclimatised um, to, their, to their local, to that environment, because uh, the less stressed or less, uh, what's this, um, yeah, the less stressed they are, the more 
better they'll be able to assimilate into that kind of like school environment. Yeah, it's a case of, in a sense, trying to help them feel more comfortable. Yeah, if the home environment is relatively settled, um, if they're engaging within their local community, school then should be uh, something that they'll be wanting to do, in a sense. So it's quite a lot of like bodies working uh, in collaboration, essentially. It should be that way, yes. Beyond the academic environment, what are the kind of techniques that these children are taking to personally develop or integrate with the community? Any any other activities that you find that they particularly engage with? I think it, it depends. Um, most probably football is a good one because that that's, that's kind of like a worldwide sport that everybody plays. So um, you'll be most probably looking to see if there's what called social activity that they like to do, that they were doing back in their own country, that you can look to see if you can get them linked in with here. Um, so that kind of increases the amount of social activity that they're doing outside of the school and the home environment. So football is a good one that I could, I could give you as, a, as, as an, uh, an example. I know here this area, sometimes they have what we call, um, is it t- table tennis clubs and stuff like that, that people can go and access. In a sense, for them to make, uh, to meet other young people who um, most probably have got the same kind of like presenting circumstances um, for them to kind of like interact with others as well. Yeah, so stuff like that, that's what's, what normally um, helps them in, in a sense. And I'm curious to know uh, about how the specific needs differ between girls and boys. Yeah, boys. Um, I, I guess I don't want to be use it. Sound like it's, I'm stereotyping people here. I think fe- uh, females are more comfortable, if I could use that word, in um, openly discussing about their emotional and psychological well-being. So that means they'll be more willing to access that support rather than males who are more introverted. Is that, is that the word? Was it who kind of like find it? quite difficult in any ways to talk about the, what is their feelings in a sense or talk about that I'm, uh, I'm struggling with um, the flashbacks of if, I, if they've experienced some trauma or I'm struggling with the thoughts around suicide ideation, stuff like that. So females, you must probably tend that it's, they're more open or willing to engage with what is accessing support rather than males. So that's why I think with males, we, they need to be kind of like a a concerted effort, if I can use that word, to kind of like try and get, get, get them to engage with that support that's there, to let them know it's there if they wanted to access it. Uh, and sometimes it's a case of, in a sense, building a therapeutic relationship with these young people, because sometimes they most probably struggle to talk anyway. So I think the more they get to know you, the more um, they'll gradually look to disclose um, their difficulties that they most probably might need help with. And, I mean, what's, like, the follow-up process? Once the kids, you know, have settled in schools and accommodation, how do they manage by themselves? Or to what extent is the support workers' supervision needed? I'll most probably give you an example. Um, if I talk you through the process, so it's a case of maybe me going out and seeing a young person. Let's give, let's give a take. We say he's 14. Yeah, um, we do. I we do our assessment, and then we determine actually this young person most probably needs uh, some form of psychological intervention. The forms of psychological intervention that are available for young people, the main one is most probably accessing psychotherapy. Um, psychotherapy normally it was just, um, as we were talking about building a therapeutic relationship. The young person will most probably be open to a psychologist who normally offer that type of therapy for an ex- or a, psych- a psychotherapist who 
of an extended period of time. So it might be that they're known to that person, uh, give or take a minimum of a year, uh, dep and depending on how they've settled and how they're kind of like um, managing their own emotional cycle while being, that would determine whether they, what's this, there's an extended period of time accessing that service or not. Or that should be the way it's, it is. Yeah. So from a psychological point of view, give or take, they will be known to a service for about a year minimum. About a year minimum. And children's services, they will most probably be known to them until the, um, give or take, 21. If they looked after a young person, um, children's services have got a responsibility to them until they're 21 or 24 if they're in full-time education. F if we take the one who's 21, that means that young person most probably um, is now settled, what's his... Um, they've been offered accommodation within the local area. We're presuming that they've now also got the indefinite leave to remain. Uh, that means either they might be within the work environment or they might have chosen to do something else. Uh, but it, I would, it, was, it depends on the young person. Yeah. Um, some of them will go on to university. Um, they might still access um, children's services then. Um, and was this, it might... Uh, with with the children's mental health services, the cutoff is 18. So if if it's felt that they needed any additional input from mental health services after 18, they would normally be transitioned to what we call the working age adults mental health services. So it, it, I think it's, it goes by case by case to access to assess what level of support that young person would need going forward. I'd like to know a little bit more about the processes of finding accommodation for these children and you know what are the effects of that displacement on the children that you could witness i might be wrong um what is my knowledge is most probably uh, what is said old knowledge my understanding is that uh, what is that it's normally for unaccompanied asylum seeking children there's normally two routes of them accessing um services from children's services point of view one would be for them to be placed in what we call a foster placement uh, which is in an environment where there is a, f a family that they uh, are living with or uh, if they may be there 15, 16 uh, and above they might decide that that young person and they've been assessed by this serv social services to say actually we feel this young person is more independent um, they might be placed in what we call shared accommodation. So shared accommodation will be where they're living uh, in supported uh, in a supported environment uh, by uh, what is uh, family workers, rather than ha them having to be put in a foster placement. Um, so those are the two routes that I that I understand that young people access housing or, or, or are, are, are supported with with regards to accommodation when they turn eighteen. For both routes, um, children's services have to, in a sense, think about offering them or supporting them in accessing housing within the local area. But it could be that it's still supported accommodation or it could be that they could be found um, their own accommodation. What are the challenges of that process? I mean, there shouldn't be any challenges with that process, um, particularly the, the, what is the supported accommodation route. The personal or private accommodation route most probably is a little bit more trickier because there's waiting lists uh, for people to access that support. 
some young people choose to stay with the foster uh, placements for a, a longer period whilst they've been uh, accommodation is being sought for them in a sense after 18 um, some young people will decide actually no I want to leave uh, this area I want to go and live in Brighton they should be assisted to access services uh, accommodation wherever they go to what was the treatment of young people in this kind of situation in Zimbabwe so in Bulawayo yeah. if you had a uh, somebody came to, to Bulawayo they were from another country uh, an orphan or somebody who didn't have their family there yeah. and they were looking for a place of safety what would the authorities <coughs> response be to them? Uh, it will be to be taken to what's it, what's it supported accommodation yeah, I don't think there's a, there might be the option of fostering but I, I'm not that well vexed in in that in Zimbabwe I think it most probably would be a children's home or supported accommodation that they would be sought for um, I think those what's this, those spaces have I think they're always full up anyway so I think young people and then end up having to spill to living on the streets um, as an as a alternative until something is found for them, unless if they could find um, a charitable organisation that's providing accommodation for them. And when, when you were young, uh, living in uh, the city, you saw people on the streets who were your age? I did, but most, most of them, I think the ones that I saw were young people who maybe their parents had passed away and there was no relatives or uh, support networks for them to kind of like be rehoused with them. So I think they, they, they had no other choice but other than uh, what's this, where they will access these orphanage services, but there might not be any space for them to be housed there. But they were known to some form of organisation there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and what were you like as a young person? I, I was a bit of a... I don't know how I can describe myself. I went to boarding school. I, so in Zimbabwe, we've got the thing that... Um, you can either go to a, a day school or you're sent to a boarding school. So all my, from what we call all my high school years up to, from up to A-levels, I spent more or less all my time at boarding school. So we only came home three months of the year. Uh, was this, uh, other t- otherwise, the whole time was spent with another thousand young people <laughs> getting up to no good, trying as much as possible to... Keep, uh, was this, keep out of trouble from the teachers. And you had, uh, I love the fact you had O-levels still. Yes. So they had the British system yep. as, a, as a legacy of, of the colonial past, yep. but they didn't update to GCSEs when England switched the system. I think they might have uh, was this, done away with the O-levels and A-levels a while back. Yeah. Was this, um, was this, uh, and they're now using their own system. Um, but was this... Uh, for a long period of time, everybody, everybody older than me, or even some people who are younger than me, I'm pretty sure quite a lot of us use the um, the O level and A level system. What would you say is the biggest signifier that you know these this a signal that these kids have given you that was like okay, I'm I I feel settled in my environment and in my community, and you know I've I've gotten to grips with the culture of mm. Brighton. So, if I'm truthfully honest, I think it was this, the only people or the young people who I've noticed who have found it quite easy to assimilate and settle will be the ones who have had their discussions with the Home Office resolved. 
So by resolved, I mean the, the Home Office would have said, yes, we've granted you indefinite leave to remain, or we've given you an extended period of five years for you to remain in the country. Having that burden of not being sent back home lifted helps people to settle down quite significantly. That means they're more, they can feel more settled in that I can actually now focus on the future. Because at the moment, quite a lot of them will most probably ex explain to you that they're living day by day because they are unsure of the outcome of their, their status whilst they're waiting the Home Office decision. So having the Home Office decision um, resolved usually what is in most it, 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 in large percentage of the cases helps young people to integrate more appropriately so that means they can start future planning to say okay um, after college I'm thinking that maybe I need to go to university um, what's this and then do engineering or whichever it is but if they've still got that um, in the back of their mind searching the home office might um, refuse my application so if I could explain what I mean by that. So my understanding is that the Home Office sometimes has until the up to, up to the age of 18 for you them to make a decision as to your legal status in the United Kingdom. So let's say 14 or 15 year old comes, sometimes they can be in that limbo for a period of time, yeah, until they're 18. That's my understanding. Or sometimes they might then just be given th th that, that status even though they're under 18. So that makes a difference to how young people would integrate, yeah, or feel more comfortable. Um, so what happens in the case that an unaccompanied asylum child comes uh, around 16 or 17 yeah. and turns 18 whilst the application is still in process? I think uh, there is an example of a young person that I well, worked with that, that happened. The lawyers um, should normally be looking to, if I could use the word, chase up the, the, the Home Office to kind of like encourage them to make a decision as to what what's going to happen with that young person's status in the UK. Um, it does happen quite a lot that they'll turn 18 and they still haven't been uh, informed of their legal status, um, which kind of like increases the young person's worry anyway. I guess with the Home Office being inundated, if I could use that word, with the assessment, sometimes some people can be can be missed, um, and that can cause kind of like increased anxieties around their status here. Do you think then them turning eighteen affects the outcome of their uh, application? From a personal point of view, I think it does. Yeah. Um, I do not know the policies, how the Home Office do work their policies, um, but you would think that to have them being informed of their status before the 10 18, at least it gives them ideas of what they need to be doing next. Uh, I guess it's the policies of the Home Office. There's not much we can do about that. You can only, we can only complain uh, and request that the, those circumstances are reviewed, but um, it, it most probably would be helpful for them to, to know prior to turning 18 at least then they can because they're now changing to adult what's this, services rather than children's services and the level of support that they might get might be a little bit different did you ever go to the home office or to the solicitors with the uh, young people the children and young people you were working with i never went to the home office or or to solicitors with the young people what i would normally do would be i would write um what we call um, mental state uh, assessments that I would forward to the lawyer 
to take to any home office appointments or any tribunal meetings. So in a sense, giving um, what is the people in authority an understanding of the young person's emotional and psychological well-being. How uh, what is the trauma that might that, that might have they, that, that might they might have experienced in the past is affecting them now in a sense. Yeah. So I never got to go to any of the what is tribunal meetings or um, or to any solicitor's appointments. But this was like uh, evidence that they if, say it was a young person said they'd experienced a traumatic situation and the Home Office didn't believe them. Your statement about their psychological uh, state could be evidence that this actually did happen because yes. they're now yeah. Yeah. And did you feel that, that did you have those situations where you felt the Home Office didn't believe the young person but you did? Um there were, in, yes, but the problem with uh, us is you can't have, you can't hide having PTSD because those symptoms will come out what is, uh, in how you're presenting anyway. Um, so it's a case of maybe sometimes maybe the young people haven't been able to fully kind of like disclose what is, um, uh, interpret how things happened to the person who's assessing them within the home office. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Because of their age, because of their because youth. Because of the age, yeah. Or maybe they, sometimes maybe that the interpreter who they're with, if they're using an interpreter, hasn't like, fully explained the, 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 the situation. Yeah. Yeah, so some some young people out that I saw, you know, they were most probably in tears, feeling that the person who I saw in the home office didn't gave me a bad vibe, didn't seem to believe what I was saying to them. Yeah, and this uh, has come up a, a number of times that the home office interviewing officers who are interviewing people when they make their asylum claim are supposed to be impartial and just helping people to present their the facts. Yeah, but actually. People come away from these uh, appointments saying that they felt they've been cross-examined, that they've been challenged, that the person just didn't believe them and was spent the whole interview trying to catch them out. And that sounds like some of the young people you work with had the same experience. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's... A lot of young people did say that when I, after maybe seeing them when they've been to to those appointments, um, and this, which kind of contributes to their worries in a sense to say, okay, uh, if I'm not being believed, um, that's going to kind of like result in me not being granted asylum or was um, allowed to stay in the UK, which is an added worry that they they'll have as well. Did they have problems proving their age? Um, I am not well vexed was this, uh, with um, the age qu assessment question. Um, that's normally done by people within children's services or was this, uh, people who have been um, commissioned by the Home Office to do that. I did meet one or two young people who had been assessed to be over 18, uh, but my impression was that they were under 18. Um, and so... It, being assessed that you're over 18 and under 18 has a significant kind of like problem for you if you because if you're over 18 you don't access the services that you get when you're under 18 um so it's a bit of a tricky what's this subject uh, or topic yeah because i think my understanding um the age assessments um they're based on your interaction with that social worker or that approved worker within the home office 
getting a background history, what's how you're presenting, um, your interaction with your peers. Um, they might come and see you at school, how you're interacting with the pe If you're saying you're 16, they might see you, how you're interacting with other 16-year-olds. Yeah. Some young people, say from maybe from Asia, might look a little bit older themselves anyway. So that can go against you as well. So it's a very, what's this? messy subject if i could put that mm. way that way yeah to deal with because yeah, some people could be stated to be over 18 when they aren't and some people people could be under when they're over so you work quite closely with interpreters yes how important is that working relationship for your work it gives uh, what's this, i think the main thing with interpreters is to ensure you're getting um the most correct information, if I could put it that way, uh, from that young person. Um, so it can go two ways. I think it sometimes it depends. I'm now what is having a moan now. What is it? Might be. It depends on the the, the, the interpreter and how what is they're kind of like putting across your point of view. Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. They are. They do very good work, but it, sometimes it depends on how the interpreter was is um, translates for that young person. Yeah. So they are quite valuable, what is valuable, uh, and they need to be used more and more because I think then we, it gives us an understanding. We are able to kind of like um, unpick what's going on with, for that young person, whether it's for health appointments or our kind of mental health appointments um, or maybe other, accessing other services locally. So for the kids themselves, how valuable of an asset is the language and being able to express themselves accurately. They feel more confident if they're more able to communicate with others um, by themselves. It improves their self-esteem, it improves their confidence. It, it, that means it, it opens more avenues for them to access support or access the, the community by themselves rather than having to rely on others. Yeah, so the, the quicker, most probably, they uh, are able to communicate and interact with others by themselves the better it is for them i'm curious to know a little bit about how these children deal with the independence so i think a lot of them most probably managed by having support networks of other young people from or other young people who've got similar circumstances to them um that's how most probably most of them manage uh, with regards to um, having support networks from their peers or people from their community who have settled here already, um, they then become the, kind of like the nucleus of their family. They're the people who they'll access uh, if they need additional support or advice. Um, it's a, it most probably is a struggle. Yeah, I, was just in, I don't. What's, I wouldn't want to be in that position myself to be turning 18 um, and then just being told, "Okay, you have to go and fend for yourself." Uh, was this, it's quite frightening. Was this, yeah, but I think having interaction with their peers and maybe um, people from charities like Refugee Radio or people, uh, was this, um, um, and other professionals, it, they might feel contained to say, "Okay, I'll manage as best as I can." In a sense, going forward. Do you find that they grow up too quickly, in a sense? They definitely have to grow up to, what's this, what's this, quicker than, I would say, um, the generic population here. Because they're having to do and fend for themselves more 
other than what is those who've got family members who can assist in even if it's the small things that was that uh, young people who grumble about who are 18 19 uh, the, every every little helps in a sense if you've got that support network rather than you having to fend or having to keep asking people for those things and it can be, can become frustrating how do you reach them what are your personal skills uh, and that you use to be able to reach these young people in the work that you were doing to be able to connect with them and support them let them know you were there to help I think it's a case of um, sharing our, our cultural identity give or take if I could use that term to say actually um, I'm from a similar background as you. Um, I'm I'm not originally from the UK as well, um, and what is and explaining to them that I'm, I'm I've gotten a little bit of an understanding of the struggles that you might be going through. It's a case of um, us finding out what support you might need and think about how we can best help you going forward, um, and being able to communicate with them in a sense. Yeah. So a young person coming from a totalitarian regime a dictatorship where every official uh, um, service is part of the state and mm. the state is perhaps the machine that's been persecuting them yeah. they come to the uk they see the home office and the the guards outside and the unpleasant uh, people working inside of it and then they meet you and you have to let them know i'm not like that i'm not part of that machine you can trust me um, that's a challenge, isn't it's it? It's a very big challenge. And there was this, uh, I think the initial thing that I always say to young people is kind of like separate myself uh, from um, the Home Office in particular, um, even children's, uh, children's services, to say actually our role uh, is, is from a health perspective. Uh, what we want to focus on is us looking at your emotional and psychological well-being. All the other, uh, these other agencies, um, I might have to liaise with them if I've got a safeguarding concern, but my main focus is to ensure that we focus on your mental health. Uh, so they are clear that actually um, I'm not part of kind of like the organizations that they might have been dealing with in, in was previous to meeting me. Being clear with them to say that this is what happens. And to what extent do you find that they are still burdened by, I guess, the border, even though they're inside the country? That's something most probably, if I'm truly honest, that won't was this, go away for these young people, unfortunately. It's something that they have to most probably, at that particular time, until their home office decision is resolved, that's something that's going to be weighing up on their mind all the time. Um, and it's a trick one. You can't really convince them otherwise to say, was this, or tell them otherwise, because I think... It's there. It's, it's something that's there, and we, you can't get away from it. In a sense, I don't know if that makes sense. That was this, the Home Office. Um, until they make that decision, you're, you're be, your mind is going to be most probably um, ruminating as to what they're th what, what they're thinking about your case. Um, are they going to grab me the leave to remain or not? So that's one thing that we kind of like young people will always be experiencing or that I've seen will always have that until the Home Office uh, issue is resolved. How do you think they form their identity? So, I mean, getting the status, I think, allows them to kind of like um, pursue their own dreams as much as possible. 
Um, I think if they're able to kind of like think out aloud to say, okay, this is who I want to be, this is what I want to do, um, that kind of like then helps them form their own identity. They might, it might be that they'll say, okay, um, um, whether they want to change religion or whichever it is, they can then decide how they want to go forward. What's this? Yeah. So there's more hope for them to think about, um, I need to pursue this as my uh, future ambition. Um, uh, it, it might require me maybe moving to another part of the country or going to university or whichever it is. That then helps them form their identity. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that 50% of them will sink and 50% of them will swim. Um, it just seems to be some people will integrate well and some people just will struggle with it. Yeah. What's the defining factor? Why do 50% succeed and 50% fail? Is it something, a quality they have, like resilience or strength, or is it some of them are more um, lucky? What's, what's, the, what's the secret? Uh, maybe 50-50 is a bit, uh, what's this? I think it should fluctuate. It depends on the individual. So resilience is one of them. Um, um, having not, what's this, a, a, an entrenched difficulty surrounding their emotional and psychological well-being is another thing that they're more, most probably able to gradually feel much better going forward. Um, um, having confidence and, and having what is improved self-esteem. Um, so resilience most probably comes from when they were younger, yeah, that they were able to manage with those kind of difficult situations and um, now think that that things are okay, they're able to kind of like say, okay, let me m put a, uh, what's this, a, a line in the sand to say, I'm starting afresh, in a sense. Well, what are your suggested improvements for this field or line of work? How could it, you know, be managed better? How could it, the whole process go smoother? I think maybe <laughs> multidisciplinary working. So working in hand in hand with other services, having a coordinated response to, what is, to assisting the young people might be most beneficial. Because sometimes I think... Uh, we're, work, we're all working in isolation. Uh, mm. what's this, and what's this, sometimes that can be detrimental to the young person. If we're all on board in working proactively um, with the young person, I think we most probably the outcomes would be much better. That kind of like most probably maybe maybe increasing funding of uh, services that focus on the, that particular client group um, would be uh, beneficial as well. Because I think um, sometimes it can be a thing of postcode lottery, if I could use that term, in w how the commissioners within a particular area commission a service for that particular client group. Um, so um, maybe uniformity, if I could use that word as well, with across the country might be, a, yeah, because you might find that our young people here in this area might find this 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 model quite beneficial or quite improving and you might find that in another part of the country they use a different model um, so we, they need to be kind of like a, a streamlined model for the, uh, the whole of the, the UK if I could put it that way What would you say is the hardest part about your job? Um, most probably hearing some of the stories that the young people um, talk about what's happened to them in the past yeah it can be quite distressing, if I could put it that way, yeah, um, and yeah, it can be quite distressing, that's the main thing, in a sense, yeah, because you you're getting to know what's, what's happened to them in the past, and some of it, for a young person, be like, oh, this really should be happening to this young person, yeah, it can be tricky, it can be tricky. 
How do you then keep yourself grounded? Um, supervision. Um, what's this with colleagues? Uh, what's this? Uh, try and separate, keep it in a contain that way. This is our work. This is what we have to kind of like help these young people um, with going forward. If they are already, if you are, they're telling you this horrible story, uh, you need to kind of like look to work with them to. Um, promote the emotional psychological well-being and for us it's kind of like supervision I'm talking about it uh, was this let it not um, affect you and the work the way that you're working with the young people it's hard though it is it is it's hard it's, ho- it's heartbreaking if you uh, you know working with somebody and they tell you this horror story about what they've been through and yeah. you can relate to them and yeah. then you f- almost feel what they feel and it can be, and there was this, and there was this. Uh, you, there you've got the added thing to say that was this, the the young people will be pre- um, more or less distressed that oh maybe I might not even get to stay here and stuff like that, and you've got no power or control on how it goes with the Home Office in a sense. So you can be a little bit, um, you can become a little bit political in your views in a sense. Yeah. What would you say for yourself and also for the people that you work with? Any hopes for the future? dreams okay uh, for me i guess um education is key for me you're learning something new every day um what's this um, and kind of like the more you're learning uh, the more kind of like the more you grow as a person yeah so for young people i'm most probably encouraged trying to keep accessing some form of education um because it, it, it will enrich them uh, they then get to meet other young people um and then they have People, the, those people become their support networks. Um, it helps them settle in into the community as well. Um, and so, education for me, yeah. Can I just jump back one question? You said that uh, the experiences of doing this kind of work can make you quite political. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us what you mean? Okay, by political, I mean questioning um, the policies, um, immigration policies, if I could put it that way, um, and how. They um interpreted is if that's a w- if that's a word uh, by the people who are um, in a sense enforced to not enforced but uh, was who are using those policies yeah because I think sometimes uh, was it, it can be hit and miss um with who you see was this particularly I'm talking about immigration uh, was this the assessment here it could be it can be a hit and miss you might find that people are interpreting the, those policies quite differently uh, it's, there's not uniform that's my interp- that's my thoughts around it um, and the policies as well are quite um, strict in themselves anyway so I, it's a tricky one it's a tricky one and uh, what is the last thing that you want is for others some whether it's children services or health services to be dragged into the political atmosphere of working with people who are, who are from that particular background, if you understand what I mean by that, yeah, yeah. We, um, it shouldn't be that we are dragged into it, but sometimes it, it can be an element that we people are. You mean the the hostile environment? Yes, yes, yeah. What, what Theresa May called the the hostile environment, yeah, yeah. So you don't want you want to be sep- ethically, you want to be not involved in any of the political decisions with regards to immigration status. We just want to focus on health, and I'm pretty sure the social workers will only want to focus on the social care aspect of it. Yeah. 
one thing I, I don't and I don't know if we can get into it, but it's just what the push factors, you know, for these young people from their countries, the, how it, you know, their families are sending them by themselves. How come the whole family isn't coming? Or if if it, they're orphans, you know, why? The, and then the sort of pull factor of why England, particularly that, just that. Kind of, um, I mean, that one is a, trick, a tricky one in the sense that um, I think depending on which part of the world the young people are coming from. Yeah. All the young, uh, what is these different reasons? So, if we use Afghanistan for, for an example, so it most probably will be what is um, young people who are being sent, but maybe um, by family to get away from the troubles there. Um, if we if we use maybe Eritrea, um, the young people there most probably um, are fearing the what is um, the experience of being a conscript in a sense. So there's different factors that are what is kind of influencing maybe family members or the young people making that decision to travel across the world more or less um, to, to access the UK. I, I've had this uh, experiences too. So children from Eritrea, yeah. um, particularly uh, young girls, they've been uh, victims of uh, sexual violence within the militia. They've been forcibly conscripted into the militia. The boys are, uh, are at risk of uh, being child soldiers or perhaps have already been yeah um they're often orphans or they've lost their parents in the conflict and then the 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 decision seems to be more okay i'm going yeah and then with uh the children from afghanistan it, it does seem to be more like their family has sent them yeah um in order to escape from it with mm. the uh with the afghan children i do wonder why is why why did the rest of the family not come with you and sometimes i don't know if it's a question they only had money for one and they thought they'd they'd rescue the child or isn't it not um a dangerous situation to to take a child and fling them <laughs> across the world, world and hope that they're not because terrible things happen sometimes on the in transit with the people that are supposed to be helping them to travel to the uk can be very abusive towards the young people and the the journey can take a long time with uh, lots of risks of slavery and trafficking you know during that process i've got a very what's this horrible example of that uh, particularly for two young girls from eritrea um, was this, they were actually care, was this, kept as sex slaves in in in, um, in Libya for an extended period of time, and I think by the time one arrived in the UK, um, she was pregnant. She didn't know who the father was in a sense. Yeah. Um, then another one of is of a, a family. This was actually a family from Eritrea. One, um, the dad was. I think they were separated in the trucks that would drive them across the uh, the Sahara Desert. Um, the females were put into one truck, the males into one truck. The females, uh, what is um, from, what it sounds like, um, the traffickers, uh, what is, without letting anybody know, just drove the truck in one, the female truck in one direction, and the male truck to Libya. This gentleman, I don't think he knows where his wife and son are up to to now. Yeah, so it might be that they've been sold into sex trafficking as well with Egypt or, or Libya whichever it is so the, the journey can be horrible was in itself yeah another one maybe for somebody from Afghanistan is to say he was um, shoved in a car boot um, for an extended period of time driving through Iran I think the way he was sitting in the truck in the in the boot most probably had an impact on his knee um, so since he's been in the UK, his knee is messed up. What is he's having to have kind of like surgery and everything? Because I think it must be dislocated because you are sat in the same position for a long period of time. So the journey can be caused, can add to the trauma that people experience. I mean, the it's the the journey is 
is can be the the sort of the the touchiest subject we yeah. can talk to people about experiences of being tortured yeah. or experiences of war um, uh, sexual violence to, uh, and the, and we can talk to people about experiences of detention and yeah. uh, you know mental health issues in the UK struggling to come to terms with what's happened to them in the past but we almost never ask people about their journey yeah. because it's so touchy and particularly because you're dealing with criminal gangs who are still operating in your country of origin and maybe in contact with family members yeah. and you can't say anything about them without endangering uh, your, your family, family potentially or having these guys coming after you you know whether yeah. it's snakehead gangs or whoever it is they're still there in, even though you're here safe yeah. uh, in inverted commas your family you're are still at risk they're still at risk yeah. e- even if you're not yeah yeah, yeah so uh, with the ones that talk about the journey are most probably people who are feeling more comfortable in within themselves yeah they um cause the, the home office that's a, the one thing that the home office will be wanting to explore quite specifically with that those young people so it's it's yeah, it's touch and go mm. yeah so different uh, people are coming to the UK for different reasons mm. and your work especially focuses on mental health mm-hmm. how does having those different reasons in context change your approach i guess it shouldn't because um, for me, I'm focusing on improving or what is assessing that young person's emotional and psychological well-being, how it's impacting on their daily living at this particular moment in time whilst they're in the UK. So I would not particularly delve too much into um, the specific traumas that they've experienced. I will most probably leave that for the psychotherapist or the psychologist to do uh, in what we call a clinical controlled environment um so it might be that the that young person might access um maybe what we call dialectal behavioral therapy or emd um, emdr uh, which are specific psychological therapies which would want to unpick some of the the traumas that they've experienced for for so for me i wouldn't be looking to delve into too much into that kind of like um trauma that they've experienced it's a case of um Containment, risk management, uh, and improving um, their well- psychological well-being on the short term. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us uh, oh. in depth about all of this stuff today. Oh, okay. So hopefully it makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you very much for joining us in okay. the studio today. Yeah. All right. Thank you.